Good morning, church. Open your copy of God's Word. If you want to open up to James chapter 4, we're in our series, Faith Works. And we know that we are made right by faith in Jesus alone. It's by His grace alone that we have a relationship that was broken, now restored. But if that faith is real, if your faith is alive, if it's genuine, it works itself out. It's evident. It's obvious. And we've gone through the past three chapters over these past weeks, and now we're in chapter four. Everybody say, woohoo. Oh, come on. We got, we got an entrance into a brand new chapter with more comparison of the old and the new, dark and light, and God's agenda versus Satan's agenda, and, and they couldn't be more opposed. And so when we kick off this chapter, I'm aware of a few things. Uh, I'm aware that uh, God is teaching all of us about this topic, conflict. A- anybody get excited about conflict? Me just saying conflict, you're like, I love the topic of conflict. You can't escape relationships. All of us have relationships, and guess what you're going to face if you stay in a relationship of any kind, coworker, friends, family, in your home, any type of relationship, there's going to be what? Guaranteed conflict. Uh, just once? Probably not. Just once in a while? Probably not ongoing, nonstop, relentless conflict. And, and what does conflict teach us? Well, I wrote down a few things that I've been learning. Can I uh, un- unpack a little bit of the journey that I've been on about, about conflict? I think you have in your notes some of, some of my thoughts. What is God teaching me through conflict? Well, the Bible is a story about conflict. There's a sense in which we could say this whole book is about conflict. This whole book is a battle between What is right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark? This whole book is about a conflict of heaven and hell, and we're stuck in between. There is a conflict going on, a conflict we cannot see, and there's conflict we can see. The whole Bible really is about conflict. And guess who the main character is? Yep, there we go. God's at the center of it all. Is is he part of the problem? No, he's part of the solution to the conflict. Did he cause it? No, we did. And he's here to, to fix it. How about this? I, I just wrote down, what am I, what am I learning? God loves to get to the heart of my conflict. God's not interested in making my life more comfortable. He's not interested in making sure that uh, I avoid conflict at all costs. He, he's not even really that passionate about making sure that I come out on top in conflict or, or that I am able to work my way through it uh, unscathed. Actually, He's getting to my heart when I'm in conflict. I wrote this down. Conflict is an opportunity for me to grow up. Everybody say, grow up. There we go. Come on. The only time that you can yell at your pastor, okay? Every time we face conflict, it's an opportunity. Do we always succeed? Do we always pass the test? But it's an opportunity to grow up, to grow up, to mature, to be somebody different on the other side of conflict. God loves to use conflict. In that way, I wrote down, what else am I learning? I'm learning that my opponent, right? I'm learning that the the person that I'm arguing with or that I'm in tension with where there's drama between me and that person is actually a means for my humility. God is using every conflict for the purpose of actually causing me to get low, to humble myself, not to rise up, not to defend my righteousness, Not to prove the other person wrong, it's for me to actually grow in humility. I wrote this down, 
God's also teaching me that not all conflict is going to be resolved. Not this side of heaven, not in this world. But you already knew that, didn't you? Many of us are well aware that there are conflicts that we're going to face that may be lifelong. There's no resolution. There's no solution to it. There are problems that need to be solved in life, but sometimes there's a lot of conflict that are actually tensions to manage. It's a tension that's not going away. There's not an end in sight, not on this side of heaven, but on that day, right? On that day, no more conflict. There's going to be peace. In the end, we're headed there, but until then, we're going to be facing relationships. We're going to be facing issues, problems, where there is no end in sight. And it's not because God doesn't know, and it's not because God doesn't care. It's because there are some things that are not up to us to resolve. We are ready. But did you know that there's other people that are not? Do you know that? Do you know that? Do you know that firsthand? That you are ready, but they may never be? Conflict. Maybe no solution this side of heaven. And here it is. Here, here's the, the theme that James is going to take us through. I bring hell up or I bring heaven down in my conflicts. What do, what do we mean by that? Meaning, there is a culture that Satan has of how to deal with conflict. There's an attitude, right, that is demonic, that is evil, that we have a tendency to kind of align with, and we bring that into our relationships. We bring that into our conflict. But we have an option. As a believer, if you are a Christian today, you have the ability that even though everybody around you is trying to bring hell up and make hell on earth for you, for your family, maybe for individuals that you love and care for, or maybe you're just the target, right? You got the bullseye. And guess what you get to do? As a follower of Jesus, you get to bring heaven down into a situation. No matter what anybody else's agenda is, you get to bring to the table God's agenda. That's, that's pretty awesome. Everybody say that's awesome. No matter how I'm treated, no matter how I got here, no matter how long it's going to last, I can choose. I can choose to bring hell up or heaven down. And here we go. James chapter 4. I want us to acknowledge this, that there are two paths, and we're just going to look at the first path today. One path is going to be, James is going to lay out that there is a worldly way, there is a hellish way, there is an evil wrong way. You can go down that path. When you are at a crossroads in a conflict, that path looks really appealing. What, what does that look like? I'm going to get even. I am going to be right. I'm going to make sure uh, that, that I destroy their arguments. I destroy their reputation. That I take them down because I want to come out on top. It's wrong. And we're going to talk about that today. And then next time we gather around James, we're going to see that there's actually a better path. Path number two that it's a heavenly, it's a godly path that no matter what happens to me, I have a choice and I can choose a different path again and again. One leads to death, the other leads to life. If you're taking notes, what's path number one? Hellish conflict, okay? Evil conflict. This is a problem. This is a problem. This is path number one. If you have your copy of God's Word open, we're reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV Verse 1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Well, that's easy, right? Others, them, my circumstances. We, we, could, we could go for a couple hours, right? I know exactly why there's fights, why there's quarrels, why there's conflict. I got a lot of reasons why. 
Well, what does James say? He doesn't say, you're irritated and angry and impatient and you're experiencing conflict because of those people, because of that situation. He says this, is it not this? Is it, is it not this that your passions, that your desires, your passions are at war within you? That the problem is within and we bring hell up instead of bringing heaven down. James is saying, here's what's going on and it's not outside of you. The problem is within you. Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't like that. I mean, like, I, 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 don't, I don't like me being the problem. I like somebody else being the problem. In fact, I'm really good. Some could call me an expert at blame shifting. I am so savvy. I'm so good at making sure that there is a strong case against every other person and why they are to blame except for me, right? Am I alone? Am I alone in that? Do you know how quick we can come up with reasons why we responded the way we did, why we were upset, irritated, why we lost it, why we're still holding on to the anger and the bitterness and unforgiveness? Anybody got a long list of why you feel totally justified? Why you are absolutely right because they are so absolutely wrong. James doesn't let us off the hook and we don't really like it. But God has a bad habit of always telling the truth, and he's telling the truth to us again. The problem is within. There is a war going on within you, he says. So I, I just jotted down a couple questions, okay? Hey, everybody ready? All right, just, just a few, just a few. Where in your life do you have conflict-free relationships? Do you have a marriage that's completely free of irritation, impatience, anger, and conflict? How about a lifelong friendship that you've never, ever experienced even the slightest conflict? What parent here has been free of any conflict in their home? Who has a sibling that there's never been any conflict? What member of the body of Christ has been free of this constant battle? Can you name one city, state, or nation where they have never experienced conflict? Anybody? It's an epidemic of global proportions. We have a problem. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. And the hardest part is to see who is responsible for so much conflict. Because if you interview a million people, guess what you're going to find out? That there's a million other people that are to blame for the conflicts that they have faced. It's never us. And But it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's found everywhere that people are found. It's everywhere. Everybody say it's everywhere. It's everywhere you look, it's everywhere, except it's so hard to detect in the mirror. It's so hard to see where the conflict starts. And he reminds us of this, fights, conflicts, all the drama. He says this, it's in your heart. It's a war of passion. It's a war of pleasure. It's a war of what you pursue, what you want the most. And he says it's a, it's a heart deal, right? So every single day, you and I are at a crossroads having to figure out which path we're going to go, that when we are confronted with someone or something that gets in the way of what we are after, what we want, hell is being pulled up in the midst of the relationship. I will get my way, and I will tell you how you are in my way. You are the obstruction of getting what I want. There will be hell to pay. I don't know if, it, if it's you that caused most of that, maybe growing up. If you look, look back at your younger years, who is the one 
that was the provoker of quarrels, fights, all the drama. Usually there's, there's one, and if it's not you, then you get to spend the rest of your life thinking there's just people like that out there that are the cause of the problem, but I was the good child. I was the good child. And the reality is there are no good children. I'm sorry. I mean, we're, we're here to just break a lot of hearts, right? Uh, there are no good kids. There are no good adults. All of us are at the heart, at the source. We are the troublemakers. We are the conflict creators. There's a war for rulership over our hearts, and it's going to continue until the final enemy is defeated. We're ushered into the final kingdom. It will be over at that point. There's a war, but you now have eyes to see it. Isn't that good news? God says, I want you to have perspective about what's real, about reality, what is true about all the problems that you face. Where does it come from? You know how powerful it is to actually like take ownership of the thing that you actually have control over? You know how freeing that is to be able to say, it's me, it's me. I, I'm actually at the center of a lot of this. I play a large part, and that means if I change, my relationships can change. I can actually be part of the solution, not just always part of the problem. That's good news. Everybody say that's good news. He's using worship language that at your heart there are passions. There's worship going up. We're all worshipers. We all are. We all are. Say we all are. We're always pursuing something. Our affections are always going out for something. I don't know if you've thought about that. It doesn't take much to find local worshipers. Wherever people gather, there is a gathering of worshipers. Wherever there is something to watch, observe, wherever there's a competition, there is worship happening. We just think like, well, that's like a churchy thing. That's like a religious thing, right? Like religious people worship. God created mankind to worship. We were born worshiping. Give me, I want, this will satisfy. If only I had, I'll be happy when. We had those thoughts far before we were trained to think about how discontent we should be and how satisfying all the things that are set before us can be. It was already inside of us because we're worshipers. The competition, the intensity of conflict, your need to win is an issue of worship. It's an issue of worship. Romans 1.25, you want to jot that down? Romans 1, Paul tells us this. They exchanged the truth about God. Don't want that. I know that's true. I know the Bible says. I know God says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the church teaches. I know that's what Christianity believes. I, I know that's what those people believe. I don't want it. I'm going to exchange it for a lie, he says. That's the attitude. That's the heart. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are either worshiping service of the creator or we're living in worship of service of the creation it's either or it's either or i know that doesn't sound like good news that sounds like really really bad news and it's because it is our whole lives we are saying if i can't see it i'm going to pursue something that i that i can how can we live with our hearts satisfied with things that we don't see when the things that we can touch and taste and see and buy and acquire seem to satisfy, at least for a moment, for a little bit. We are only always going to live worshiping the creature or creator, one or the other. That's been the pattern since the very beginning. In your bulletin, you should have a half sheet. Do you know what the Bible calls these things that we, we raise to higher priority and value? He calls them idols. He says, Anything that, that you seek to 
find satisfaction in, to find ultimate pleasure, purpose, meaning, that it is not the God that created you, is an idol. Here's some helpful insight. Did you know that most of the things that we make an idol are not bad things? They're actually good things that, that turn into bad things, okay? So I want this as a helpful tool for you to be able to, to go through. I just want to read through it quickly. It starts here. This is what James is, is unpacking. In your heart, there are passions, there are desires. I desire. I want it. These are good, God-given desires. First of all, the desire to want is a good desire. At their basic desire, they're not sinful, and that's the key in understanding idolatry. Things like love. Is it wrong to love? No? Good thing? Is it, is it wrong to want respect? To seek safety? To desire security? To look for acceptance? To have a godly family? To be looking for a marriage that is healthy? to raise children, that they would be respectful, loving, and that there would be unity and harmony at home to provide for your family. I mean, to be able to seek and work hard, get a job and provide. I just listed maybe some of the the top idols of our culture. And they're not idols because they're bad. They're idols because they have been elevated disproportionately to the God that demands love and worship at the heart. I mean, think about this. It starts at desire. Then where does it go? I don't stay at desire. Then I go to, well, I expect. It's a slippery slope occurs where we start thinking, I want or I need. I I need it. I, I, I need that. And these desires to be met in order to be happy, fulfilled, and pleased in life. Right here, we have one foot in the world and one foot out. Remember the conflict crossroads? We're at a crossroads and we're starting to do the splits. This is a problem. Everybody say, ouch. Yeah, this is getting painful. Like, I I think I'm pretty good. I'm still wanting kind of the Jesus thing, but also I want or I need. But it doesn't go from I desire to I expect, then it it leads to I demand. Anybody been there? Like, I I don't just want it or just kind of expect it. I must have it. I must have it. I deserve, in, in fact, I deserve to have it. I deserve to have my desires met. I deserve to have these things. Both feet are in the sin pool now and idolatry has taken root. And unfortunately, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop, does it? Where, do, where does it go? Not just I demand, but then I get into I'm disappointed. Here's all the emotional energy when we don't get something that we really, 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 did I say really? Really want, and we question God's character. We question God's love, his mercy. We get angry, depressed, and fearful. I must have it. I didn't get it. I'm disappointed. How do you respond then? It gets darker, right? The downward spiral, then I judge. I judge. Because idols demand a sacrifice. Did you know that? There's always a sacrifice involved. There's always a sacrifice. And that we're living for our mini kingdom. We play the judge and issue a verdict that needs to be carried out because our functional idol, our practical desire, did not get satisfied. I judge. And where does it end up? Because our idols, because our desires didn't get satisfied, we say, because you did or did not meet my desires, I will respond by fill in the blank. Some of you scream and cuss. Some of you uh, go on a binge. Some of you uh, hit social media, whatever it is, whatever the response is, right? We either lash out in anger to tear the other person down. We go inflict self-harm to ourselves in a form of addiction or other ways. I I want you to take this home and, and think about how it continues on, down. Once we have a foot in, it doesn't stay there. The slippery slope takes us to some dark 
dark places. I think I asked earlier, does anybody have any regrets? Any regrets in relationships? Looking back of, why did I say that? Why did I respond that way? Why was I so angry? Because now that you're out of it, you look back and go, it was so stupid. It was so small. It seemed so insignificant. Why did it rock my world in such a way? Why did it destroy that relationship when now that I look back, it's not that big of a deal? God wants to open our eyes to see, what if our whole life, every time that we blew up, freaked out, every time we were the cause of a broken relationship, it's because we had a set of expectations that maybe were good desires that turned into bad desires because they were elevated to God desires, ruling desires, above and beyond what God desired for you. And you and I, we just can't say, okay. (laughs) We can't say, I have enough. We can't say, I'm content here, and we rage, right? We rage against or we rage within. Never before have we lived in a culture where there has been so much medication dispensed for depression and anxiety. Never in history have we had a culture that over 50% are currently on or have recently been on pharmaceuticals for one of these two areas of struggle. Where does anxiety and depression come from? It doesn't come from the outside. It comes from within. And not all of it can be solved just by looking in the mirror. But how much progress can we make in overcoming when we recognize much of the side effects that I'm experiencing in this culture is due to my own desires turning into wild idols that cannot be satisfied and I am so anxious about not getting what I want or fearful about what is going to happen to me that I demand security and safety. I demand to have and I want what others have between jealousy, between social media brainwashing, if we can call it that, that we are positioning ourselves in a place of I want, 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 I don't know about you, but I'm just feeling anxious thinking about that, okay? All right? What if we live that way? What if we live that way? So what does he say? Verse 2, you desire, right? Let's go back to you have a passion. You have a desire, even a desire for a good thing, even a good thing. Ever say even a good thing? Even a good thing, even a good thing. You desire and do not have. Ooh, how are you going to respond to that? You desire and do not have, so you, you murder. I'm, I'm willing to sin to get what I want. What did Jesus say? Uh, if, if you hate someone, even in your heart, if you hold a grudge and you're bitter and you're angry, you've already committed murder because I wanted and I did not get it. You covet and you can't obtain. How are you going to respond? I want it so bad. They have it. I want it. It should be me. They're not worthy. How are you going to respond? You fight and you quarrel. Do we, do we have to go into uh, the, the, the average family gathering to talk about uh, dad or grandpa's will and who gets what and what ensues in gatherings like that? Why is that? Well, because it's everybody else's fault. Or it's a gathering of idolaters, not just desiring, but demanding and then judging. Somebody's going to pay if I don't get what's coming to me, what's due to me. 
we have a problem. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And he says, you fight, you quarrel. He says, even the imagery of you, you murder, you rage. So here's the, here's the principle. A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a, a God thing or a ruling thing or an ultimate thing. John Calvin said this, and these are scary words. The human heart is an idol factory. The human heart, it just it continues to manufacture and produce idols. Passion, pleasure, I need, I must have, I must attain. The moment you get victory, have you noticed this? The moment you get victory over, man, I just had to have that, but I finally kicked it. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Am I the only one? Like the moment that we get freedom from one addiction, all of a sudden there's something else now. And it's like, well, now I can't kick that. And that never used to be attractive to me, but now that I've experienced putting that away and putting that off, all of a sudden, this new thing is like really sexy. It's really attractive. Like I have to have that. Why didn't I notice that before? So if it's not this, it's that. Why? Why is it that everywhere we go, there's, just, there's always a demand that I must have, I must experience? Because the problem is where? It's it's not around us. Well, it's the culture we live in. Do you know how bad things are getting? I mean, like the world we live in, it's just so seductive and so dark. Yeah, it's been like that since the fall because the problem has always been where? It's always been a world, a culture, a city filled with people that manufacture idols in the heart. This doesn't sound like good news, does it? Not so good. It's, it's getting darker. It's getting darker. I want us to think about this. When we demand in our hearts for things that have been elevated above just a basic desire, we actually quit looking at people as people. Have you thought about that? We quit looking at people as people. We start looking at people as means to an end. We should, we should get to know each other. Why? Because I can see a little bit of what I can get out of you and how you can help me get my thing. And even if it's just, I want people to think higher of me, so I will associate with certain people and not others. And why is it that on social media we don't post? Why is it that, okay, three, three hours later, am I perfect? Is the background perfect? Are we in the perfect place? Take the shot, right? In fact, take 40 of them and I will pick the best one and then I'll go through 100 filters to make sure that I have the best of the best of the best. Why? My whole life is about making sure that people think more highly of me, that I am better than I really am, that I'm more accomplished than I really am, it's exhausting, right? It's exhausting to try to live for the approval of others. If I can't get it, at least I'll look it, right? If I can't attain it, at least I'll spend time with people that have attained it, and it'll be better for me. Human heart, it's an idle factory. You get into conflict, there's drama in your life, and so what do you do? How do you respond? Did you know that there's, there's a lot of types of people and a lot of responses, but here, here's my top three, okay? Are you ready? Are you ready? For some of you, you were, you were raised in a super competitive home. I had two much older brothers, and so the point that I remember being able to walk, I was being put in like wrestling move death grips where I could barely breathe, okay? That was the beginning of welcome to life, right? And if you survive, you get to keep living. Like, thank you. I really appreciate that, right? So I don't know if you were in a competitive home, right? Like just to survive, you had to, you had to compete. For some of us, maybe, maybe not so much, depending on how you watched. Maybe parents respond to conflict, kind of picked up on life goes easier 
it goes better if I, if I do this in response to conflict. That seems to be working in my home for the people that I'm observing and watching, certain things. So here's number one, winners. There are winners. In, in the world, there are winners and losers, and your entire outlook, maybe that's you, is that I'm going to win. I'm going to win at all costs. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to take shortcuts. I'm going to push through. I need to make sure that I come out the other side on top at all costs, right? Even if I have to lie, steal, cheat, whatever, whatever it is, I, whatever I have to do, I'm not going to lose, right, at, at anything. So your conflict response is, I must win at all costs. That's, a, that's one strategy. Uh, for, for some others, uh, you are pleasers. Is somebody upset at me? Well, like, I, I need to make sure that, like, we, we sit down and we talk and that, like, everything's okay and, like, are, are we okay? Is there, is there, is there any strife between us? Is, did I say something? Did I do something wrong? And at all costs, I need to make sure that I am liked, that I am in right relationship with everybody. I don't know if you are the type of person that stays up all night long rehearsing every relationship all throughout the day. You're replaying okay, were they upset? I don't know, like, did they just have bad gas? Or was that like a scowl? Uh, I don't like, I don't know. And like, I need to follow up with my coworker and make sure, did I say something wrong? Did I step on your toes, right? And maybe it's family members that it's like, they're upset again and I did something. So now I need, there goes the rest of my week because I'm trying to make amends with the one that's upset so that we can be back on, uh, on good grounds, good terms, right? Between those two, maybe there's a few of you that are like, well, what if I'm neither of those? No problem. There is a third option that we have avoiders. It's not that I need to win and fight. It's not that I need to go in and make sure that everybody is happy and satisfied. If there is any conflict, even a mile away, uh, you're like a hound and you're just like sniffing around wherever there's tension, wherever it's hard. I am running the other way. I'm just going to put my head in the sand. I, I didn't know anything was going on. I, I didn't know. I, I'm not part of that. Don't ask me any questions. Don't get me involved. Avoid, avoid, avoid. There's got to be a better way, right? There's got to be a better way. God has a way forward, and you just got to come back over the next couple of weeks. We got we to gotta find out what that is. We just get a lot of bad news. We got a lot of bad news today, okay? Verse, verse three, he continues. If there is this kind of conflict going on, and there's these kinds of responses, he says, you ask, you ask, everybody say pray, you pray. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church, right? And he's saying, church, this is your lifestyle. These are the things happening in your life. This is the kind of conflict that's going on. And he says, and because you are a follower of Jesus, you ask. You're talking to God about this, but what's happening? You ask and you do not receive. Why? Everybody ask why. Why? 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 You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He says, conflict is not just a horizontal reality that we all face. He says, the conflict that you engage in every day in relationship, do you know what it also affects? It affects your vertical relationship. If you understood my family, if you understood my background, if you understand the place that I work, if you understood my neighborhood, if you understood, if you understood, and the next question is, well, are you right with God? Are you walking with God? Well, of course I am. So you're not right with others, but you're right with God. And what would James say? That can't be. It can't be. He says, you continue having a relationship with God vertically. You're asking and you don't receive because you ask with 
wrong motives, right? To spend it on your own passions. You're living this way horizontally in your relationships and it's overflowing into your life with your heavenly father. When I make my desires the goal of my life, I must expect my prayers to go unheard. When I make my desires the goal of my life, I must expect my prayers to go unheard. And when I, when I say desires, I'm saying the same way that James is talking about desires. Selfish pursuits of idolatrous proportions. Do you believe that we can go through seasons where we're praying and praying and the reality is our requests aren't even making it past the ceiling? Because God's like, you, you're asking with motives that are selfish because that's how you're living in relationship with others. It's all about you. It's all about what you can get out of it. And then you come to God with the same attitude. And he's like, sometimes God says yes when we pray. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait. Sometimes he says la, 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 la. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm not listening. I'm not listening to you. Go and get your heart right. Go and get your relationships right and come back and talk to me. Because for many of us, maybe this used to be you, okay? Everybody say, that used to be me. All right, so I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the old you, all right? For many of us, we've experienced the seasons of God is the great vending machine in the sky. The big guy upstairs, cha-ching, baby. All I got to do is pop in a few tokens, pull the lever, like it's coming my way, right? Now that I, I have a relationship with God, my God is the one that supplies all my needs. And if he supplies everything that I want and need, but I feel like my needs, wants kind of get blurry sometimes, that I can ask and he's just going to give it to me, right? Because that's the type of God he is and that's how much he loves me. And at some point we get a little jaded, don't we? Like, God, where are you? And why aren't you showing up? And why aren't you giving me what I want? Why aren't you providing? Where are you? Have you been there? I've been there not too long ago of questioning, God, is this not according to your will? Is this not a good thing? I'm asking and I'm not seeing it. And the frustration and the irritation and the distancing in my relationship with God that over time God revealed through this passage not too long ago, a couple years ago, John, I'm talking to you. This is for you. Even a good thing when it's elevated to a I must have ultimate thing is an idol. It's got to go. Your request is good. Your motives are wrong. And I don't know if you've been there asking for good things, asking for a prodigal to come home, asking for your bills to be paid, going through a, a season of singleness and saying, I, I, want, I want a spouse. I want to be with somebody. I, where is the, the person of my dreams? Good things, all good things. But if they're elevated over God, I really don't want you as father. I want this as my God. I want this to satisfy me, fulfill me. That's a problem. Everybody say that's a problem. David Henderson in Culture Shift, such a powerful book. I recommend it if you want to write that down. Culture Shift is the name of the book. David Henderson, he writes this. We have tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a God who is the divine men, uh, vending machine in the sky wasn't original with me, there to meet our every need. Unhappy? Unattractive? 
unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled, come to Christ. He will give you everything you ask for. We forget God is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. And when we make Him out to be, we squeeze Him out of His rightful place at the center of our lives and we put ourselves in His place. God is in the business of being God. And He's perfect at what He does. You were created not to have it your way, not your timing, but according to His design. Why? Because there's something better. God has better things, and we don't believe it, that there's something better than the thing that I want so badly. There's something better. It's better. It's better. What He's offering is better. Everybody say, it's better. It's better. It's better. Would we believe it today? Would we believe that? God, I believe that what you have in store for me is better. I believe that your timing is better. Your ways are better. I believe what you're going to bring my way is actually going to satisfy me in ways that I never thought possible. And you're keeping me from having the things that are going to let me down and disappoint over and over because he's a good God. He's a good God. Uh, in, our, in our home, I got some of my kids here. I probably shouldn't say this, but as we consider all of the the propaganda out there of you must have and buy the coolest and the latest every single time that there is a request in our home, we, we always say, make a list because Christmas is coming. There's something about, okay, lay out all of your wants and then hand it over to us and trust that when the time comes, the things that you forgot about, don't even care about, you didn't want in the first place and they were never going to satisfy the things that you still want all year, we'll see. And most of them you're going to forget about because there's a whole new set of things that you want in the future. How do we live in a way where we are content that God knows best that He's going to provide something better than what we think is going to satisfy? Christianity is not coming to Jesus for instant gratification. So I, I wrote these questions down. What do you really want from God? Have you ever asked that? I I asked that question this past week, like, and it kind of startled me asking it. Actually, I stopped halfway through. I started asking the question, what, what do I really want from God? Like, what, what am I really after? What do, I, what, do I, what do I think he's keeping from me, keeping back? And I don't even know if I want to answer the question because I think sometimes if we answer it, we hear ourselves and how ridiculous it is that we're demanding from God something that is so temporary, that's so empty when he has something something better. Verse 4, everybody say, land the plane. You adulterous people. James, 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 be kind. He's saying we have such a serious issue that when God is telling you to go one way and take path number two, your default is to go down path number one. And it's a pathway of adultery. Everybody say those, those are strong words. Those are really strong words. God's perspective here, God's response to the struggle. So you can't walk away and say, why, why is preacher man like beating us and, and, and calling us out and being so harsh? James is passionate about this for a reason because he wants this imagery in our minds. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or absolute hatred with God? Do you not know? Did you not know that? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Have you heard that verse before? I remember the first time hearing that and being like, what? That's like so OT. 
I mean, like, are, are we back to the Old Testament and like law and judgment and wrath? Even with God as your father, you can live pulling hell up into your desires, into your passions, instead of allowing heaven to fill your desires, your vision for your future and who you think you are and what you need. And here he's saying, adultery, it's adultery. Sinful human conflict is always rooted in spiritual adultery. I, I don't think we want to admit this, but how am I committing adultery just by desiring something a lot? How would you use the word adultery, something that's so vivid and so evil for an area of my life like, isn't it a good thing to want some of these things? I, I, want, I want a peaceful, quiet home. For, for some, we went through years and years, we were unable to have kids. And I remember being a home of tears, of God, we want children so bad, and wrestling with God over infertility, and how bad do you want it? Do you want children more than you want me? Are you trusting me? For, for many of us, we're praying for healing, maybe for ourselves, for others, and the length we will go to make sure that we get what we want and we demand it, not just request it, he calls it adultery. He calls it adultery. Why? So in closing, let's, let's envision this. The church is the bride of Christ. At the moment that each individual comes to Christ, right? We don't come to Christ as a family. It's not like you're a shoe-in and you're grandfathered into the faith because you grew up in a Christian home. If you came to Jesus, you came on your own. You came as an individual. And at that moment that you surrendered your life to Jesus, you said, Jesus, I'm committed wholeheartedly to you. I'm now in a covenant, a relationship that is locked in and it was paid for by blood. It cost Jesus his life. He calls it a marriage. And he says, I'm offering you myself as a bride would to the groom. We're not two anymore. We are one. We're united. We're together for life. I'm here to satisfy you, Jesus says. And any time that we look around and say, well, I want that more. I'd like that more. Do we realize what we're doing? Because it seems small. It seems small. Everybody say it seems small. It seems a small thing just to say, well, I really, really want that or need that or I expected that thing from them or that person got in the way and I had a right to kind of unload on them and let them know. What if in those moments we would slow down and we would say, I'm married to Jesus. And when even a good thing is elevated in this area of being, becoming a bad thing because it's a ruling thing, it's a I must have thing, the imagery of I'm cheating on Jesus. He's offering me himself, the God of the universe that, that satisfies. And I'm saying, no thanks. Maybe later, if this thing doesn't work out, maybe, maybe I'll come back to you, Jesus. And do, do we treat our spouses that way? For those of us that are married, thinking about how heinous it is to have somebody go, well, this week, you're just not doing it for me. So I'll be back next week after I kind of shop around. And if nothing really satisfies, then I'll return. But in the church, we call that what? Backsliding and rededicating our life. Like I shopped around for a while, found the world to be empty, 
all right, Jesus, now I'll come back. But how awesome is it that Jesus is a God that says, I'm here, I'm waiting for you again and again and again. I know it's not satisfying. I know it leaves you empty. I know that you have a hangover and that you're sick from devouring the world's goods. And I know you have that taste in your mouth. That's, I thought it was going to be better. I thought it was going to be more satisfying. I, I thought this was finally going to be it. And I, and I tried this and I buffet-lined the world. And Jesus is like, come home, come home, come home. Come back to me where satisfaction is, is found. As the worship team comes up, I just want, I want our hearts to be in a place where we want to respond. We want to respond to Jesus today and say, I want to come home. I want to, I want to come back. I, I want Jesus to satisfy the longings of my heart. I don't want my whole life to be filled with conflict internally and wrestling over, I want Jesus plus something else. And, and for there to be, maybe this summer, a season where you recognize Jesus made you for himself. He made you that you would have a relationship where he alone satisfies. His grace is so glorious that you would stay home, that you would walk closely with him, that you would overcome temptation when it shows up knocking at your door. And you would say, I I don't want to live for the world anymore. I don't want to live for those things. And that your prayer life You hear me? You hear me? Your prayer life would be radically different where you would say, God, I want to be right with you. I want my heart motives to be right for your glory, not that I would be a little bit happier, but that you would be glorified and watch God open the heavens, that you would watch him move and answer prayer. Let's read these commitments. As you go, you should have this in your your outline, but also for us to just say this together, And again, I know today has been like, wow, what a bummer of a message. Hoping for happier things in the weeks to come. James wants to open our eyes. He wants to shake us up to see, unless you see the bad news, you're not going to hunger for the good news. Unless you see that you're wayward, you're not going to run back home. And so let's say these together as we enter into this week. I choose to get honest about my idolatry. I confess patterns of worldly desires and I repent of my spiritual adultery. 